And uh, let, let me take just a minute and remind you of uh, what we have in the Psalms. You know, the Psalms are a unique book for a lot of reasons. One of those reasons is uh, Psalms wasn't written by just one author. So, so most of the books we have in our Bible, there's a single author behind the book. That's not the way it is with the Psalms. Now, I know that we tend to identify the Psalms with David. We think of David as the one who wrote the Psalms. But David only wrote maybe half of the Psalms. Okay, so that's one thing to remember is lots of different men were used by God to contribute to this book. Um, Moses wrote one of the Psalms. Asaph wrote Psalms. Solomon wrote Psalms. And then there are lots of Psalms where we're not even told who the author was. And not only were lots of different men used by God to pen it, but the Psalms were written over a huge expanse of time. So the Psalms cover about a thousand years. There are Psalms written over a thousand year period of time. So just the number of men who contributed and the time period that it covers makes the Psalms a unique book. But that's not the only thing that makes it a unique book. The, the Psalms, of course, also is a book of songs. There's no other book in the Bible that's written quite like this. And think of how songs work. We don't we don't just sing songs to state facts. Why do we sing songs? Songs aren't, aren't just written for information. Songs are written for emotion. And that's how the Psalms work. So uh, we don't just read the Psalms for doctrinal reasons. Now there is wonderfully rich doctrine in the Psalms. But the Psalms are meant to, to combine rich doctrine and deep emotion together. So they're not just written to inform us they're written to move us. So we're not just reading the Psalms. We shouldn't do this with any of the Bible, but we're not just reading the Psalms with our minds. The Psalms are intended to engage our hearts. This is why over the centuries, guys haven't just written and spoken to the girl they love words. They've written songs to sing to express their heart. And that's how the songs, the Psalms work. And we need that. So the Psalms are written to give us all of these different pathways we can use to approach God. So they're giving us dozens of pathways upon which we can pour our hearts out to God. So I need to know, how can I sing? How can I sing when my spirit feels crushed? How am I supposed to pray when I'm confused? How am I supposed to praise God when I'm lonely? Well, the Psalms give us examples of all of that. So any emotional, any situation you find yourself in in life as a believer, you can find a psalm that is there to help you pour your heart out to God. And Psalm 34, of course, is one of those. Psalm 34 is identified as a hymn of thanksgiving. So David is writing this psalm on the other side of this great deliverance that God had wrought in his life. David had made a foolish decision that had gotten him, in, him into quite a bind. Have you ever been there before where your own foolishness got you into quite a situation? That was David. And in that situation, David had cried out to God and God heard him. In that situation, he cried out to God and God delivered him. And he's writing this psalm on the back side of that and he's writing it to encourage everyone who is in a situation like that to seek the Lord. No matter where you find yourself, David's urging you to keep looking to God and keep calling out to God. And just the layout of this psalm is a little bit, uh, a little bit unique. It's written as an acrostic. You'll notice as you look at Psalm 34 that there are 22 verses in Psalm 34. And that's because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. 
And so the way this psalm is written is David is going through the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 begins with the first letter of the alphabet. Verse 2 begins with the second letter. Verse 3 begins with the third letter and, and so forth. And that, that they would write psalms. There's only a handful that are written this way. But they would do that as a, a memory aid. So they would write them that way. I don't know if you did this, but even when I was in school trying to memorize stuff, sometimes I would come up with little acrostics from the first words of the definition to try to help me remember. Well, that's, they, that's why they would write psalms this way. They would use acrostics as a way of aiding in memorization to help those who would hear it memorize this psalm and commit this psalm to heart. And this psalm is unique in that not only are we told who the author is, no, no, just to back up, if you were here last week, you might remember Psalm 33 was one of the few psalms that had no heading on it. And that means Psalm 33 didn't tell us who the author was, it didn't tell us when it was written, it didn't tell us the tune it was to be sung to, it gave us no information like that. Well, Psalm 34 is the other end of the spectrum. There's a heading to this psalm. In fact, let's read that heading together. This is so important to understanding what's going on in this psalm. Psalm 34, here's the superscription, the heading to it. It says, A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. Now just stop there for a minute. So there's a backstory to this psalm. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed, but people tend to enjoy getting the stories behind famous songs, even the hymns we sing in church. Um, everybody enjoys hearing the story behind It Is Well With My Soul, right? Horatio Spafford, who's writing that after his daughters have been killed in a shipwreck and they've drowned. And as he's sailing back across at the spot where they drowned, he writes... When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows, right? He writes it in that moment. Or uh, um, Amazing Grace stands out a little bit more when you know the story behind John Newton and how he came to know Christ. Well, we're given the story behind this song, behind Psalm 34, and it is quite a story. So before we dive into it, Justin read most of this song to start the service, but before we dive into it, I want to pause for a minute and set the scene of this psalm in your mind. It, it's so important to get your mind around what David is saying and why he is saying this. So here's the story. You know, David first appears in the Bible in uh, 1 Samuel 16. Now, 1 Samuel 15 is where God sort of once and for all washes his hands of King Saul. Saul has sinned against God to the point that God is done with Saul. He's done with the line of Saul. So chapter 16, God sends the prophet Samuel out to the home of this man named Jesse to anoint one of his sons as the next king. And of course, everyone's surprised by the choice. He picks the runt of the litter, teenage David, and he is anointed as the next king of Israel. That's a surprising choice because David's a nobody. But right away we begin to see the sort of, the sort of man David was. So the end of 1 Samuel 16 is where Saul is in turmoil spiritual and emotional turmoil. And David, who is this skilled musician, is brought in before Saul and he begins to play his instrument. And as David plays, God steadies, calms Saul's soul. So David's a musician, but he's not just a musician. Because chapter 17 is the famous story of where Israel and Philistia go to war against each other and there's a sort of stalemate in the battle. 
And the champion of the Philistine army walks out into the valley between the armies and begins to taunt the Israelites. He begins to call them to send their greatest warrior out onto the battlefield and they'll square off man to man and see who's going to win this war. And every one of the Israelite soldiers is scared to death until David shows up. And while they're hiding behind rocks and bushes, David takes his sling and he goes out on the battlefield and amazingly he slays the giant Goliath. And so we're learning that David can handle a weapon as well as he can handle an instrument. And then it's like David's name and his career takes off at that point like a rocket ship. He begins very quickly to accumulate fame and fortune. Saul takes David and he makes David one of the commanders of the Israelite military. And David seems to be the, uh, the general patent of the Israelite army because he is leading huge victories over the Philistines. And after one of those victories, as David is coming back home, all of the people in this town rush out to see David. It's like a victory parade through town. And they begin singing a song about David. Do you remember the song that they started singing? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. I mean, they're singing and writing songs about what a great soldier David is. You know you're famous when people write songs about you. But there was one person who wasn't very impressed with those songs about David. Who was it? The other guy in the song, King Saul, wasn't all that impressed with that song because they're, they're praising David as being greater than Saul. And so jealousy began to build in Saul's heart until finally it boiled over. And on one occasion, David is at a meal, enjoying this meal with Saul, when in the middle of it, Saul snaps and he grabs a spear and he hurls it at David. And David is... He manages to dodge the spear. But really, from that point forward, David is on the run. Saul begins using everything in his power trying to track David down. He has a group of assassins stake out David's house, hoping that they can catch him at home. He uses the army to try to go after David and find him and sell. So now David, who was just a second ago shooting up like a rocket ship, in an instant David finds himself with nowhere to go, He's public enemy number one. Nobody's going to help him. Nobody's going to take him in. And so, so in this sense of desperation, David goes down to the tabernacle. Do you remember that story by any chance? He goes to the tabernacle and he sees the priest. And David invents this whopper of a lie. And he tells the priest that he had actually been sent on a top secret mission by King Saul himself. And he needs some supplies. He's run out of food. And so the priest gives David the showbread from the tabernacle. And then David says, you know what else? I left in such a hurry that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon to bring with me. Do you happen to have any weapons in the tabernacle? Well, they didn't generally keep a lot of weapons in the tabernacle. But they did have one weapon. Do you remember what weapon they had there? Well, they had taken the, they had taken the sword of Goliath and they had presented it in the tabernacle as a sort of trophy. That's the only weapon they have. And so they go into the tabernacle. You can imagine them getting it from the shadow box where they're displaying it. And they get this sword that had belonged to the giant Goliath and they carry it out to David. And so now David has a little bit of bread. David has a weapon. But that's not going to get him very far, is it? Because there's still no one who's going who's to help David willingly. And even that scene shows us what David's mental state was. So David is in such a desperate condition 
David feels like God can't even help him at this point. So David is now inventing these huge lies, trying to get himself out of trouble. But even now, it seems like there's nowhere he can go in Israel where Saul can't find him. So it seems to him that his only option is to leave the country. But even that's not enough of a solution, because even if he leaves the country, he's still going to need help. How's he going to find employment? How's he going to find food? He's going to have to go out of the country where he knows somebody. And it's at that moment that David makes a really, really, really bad decision. And I should just pause here and say, so he's in a position where there are tumultuous circumstances and his emotions are running wild. And at this moment in David's heart, his, his fear is looming larger than his faith. Now, when you're in positions like that, do you tend to make good decisions or very bad decisions? Very bad decisions. And David makes a very bad decision. He decides that he's going to leave the country, and the only place he can go, he thinks, where he's known is if he goes to Gath. Gath was the capital of the Philistines. And so he's going to go to Gath now that... I guess the way it's working is it's the old, the enemy of my enemy is my friend idea. Well, David knows the Philistines hate Saul. Well, now Saul hates David. So David's thinking since Saul is both of our enemies, that'll make us friends. And so he's going to go to the Philistines with hopes that they'll welcome him in. And here's how that goes. Listen to the story. This is told in First, uh, first Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21, we'll just read part of it. If you're interested in it, I would encourage you to go back and read more of this. It's a fascinating story that the Lord gives us. I'm starting in verse 10. 1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 10, it says, Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish. Now you'll notice in Psalms he's called Abimelech. Abimelech was a title. Achish was his name. And went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his... They've heard the song too. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you've brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? No, you've got to try to picture what's going on. So here comes David riding into the Philistine capital city of Gath. And just as a side point, who else was from Gath? That's where Goliath was from, right? Goliath had been the hometown hero of Gath. Everybody in Gath knew Goliath. Everybody in Gath loved Goliath. And David is the man who killed the hometown hero. And then add to that, what weapon is David carrying around his waist? The sword that belonged to Goliath. So here comes David riding into Gath where he killed the hometown hero and he's wearing around his waist the sword that had belonged to their hero. And you can imagine the shock on their faces as David comes riding into town. And they start going to one another. 
Isn't that the guy that they used to sing the songs about? You know that old song they sing in Israel, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And by the way, David has slain his tens of thousands. Tens of thousands of whom had he slain? Philistines. They sang songs about the thousands of Philistines that David had killed. And here David comes riding into the capital city of the Philistines. And so they seized David to take him to the king. One, one author said that this was like a steer walking into a meat processing plant. That's what David's doing. He is walking into the capital city of the Philistines as if they're going to welcome him with open arms. And it's right at that point that David realizes he has made a huge mistake. There's nowhere, it seems, no way it seems to him he's ever going to get out of there with his life. He's trapped. So he decides he's going to play the last card in his hand. What's the last? You see this with criminals sometimes. What's the last line of defense? I'll plead insanity. And so David begins to act like a crazy man. He begins to let the drool run down his beard. And he, he goes up to one of the walls and starts scribbling nonsense on the wall. And they already thought this guy must be crazy just because he came to Gath in the first place. And it works. The Philistine king sees David acting this way and goes, Look, guys, I have already hit my quota of crazy people around me. I don't need any more. I don't need to import extra crazy people. So get him out of here. And so David is kicked out of gas. So he leaves, he leaves with his life, but not necessarily his dignity. And he goes back to Israel and he finds a cave. It's called the Cave of Adullam. He finds a cave in Israel to hide out. And here's what happens when he gets back to that cave. This is picking up in chapter 22. 1 Samuel 22. Listen to verses 1 and 2. It says, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him. So you see what happens? He gets kicked out of Gath. He goes to this cave. He gets there, and his family goes out to see him. And then, almost naturally, it's like all of the ne'er-do-wells in that area start gathering around David. All of the outcasts, all of the outlaws, all of the men who are so deep in debt, they've had to go on the run. All the men who are so discontented and angry about their lot in life, they accumulate around David. Well, what do you say to a group of men like that? Well, it seems to be in this time that David wrote the words of Psalm 34. It's like he's just left Gath, and the more David thinks about what had happened in Gath, the more clear it is to him that the only reason he had gotten out of there was because of a miracle of God. David should have been killed. They should not have let him go. And he realizes the reason he had gotten out was not because of his first-rate acting job where he acted insane. The reason he got out of there was because of God. And so David sits down and he pins the words to this hymn where he is praising God for the fact that even though this poor man had made such a foolish decision and had gotten himself into trouble, God had heard him. And it's a psalm, really, that is, that is written for the brokenhearted. 
It's a psalm that is written for the crushed in spirit. He goes on and says that in this psalm. And so David, from his experience of knowing God's deliverance, is writing to encourage everyone else there with him and everyone else that would come in the future that no matter where you are, cry out to the Lord. In fact, here's the theme of it. Just look at a few of these verses. Look at verse 4. Back to Psalm 34. Verse 4. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me, notice the word, from all my fears. Verse 6. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 17. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Do you see the words that David keeps using? God can deliver you from all your fears. He can deliver you from all your troubles. So there's, there's no situation you will find yourself in that is too deep or that is too dark for God. That's the theme of the psalm. And it can be, it can be broken down into two main sections. Spurgeon says that the first ten verses of this psalm are a hymn, and then the last twelve verses are a sermon. And so that's how we're going to break it down. We're going to begin by looking at David's hymn. Let's, let's just read the first ten verses again. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me out of all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So it starts with a real simple, straightforward proclamation of praise. I will bless the Lord at all times. And you can hear the emphasis on at all times. Because what's just happened is David had found himself in a situation where he was convinced that God wasn't enough. He was in this situation where he's trying to lie and connive his way out of it. He's lost sight of God. And so David says, not anymore. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise is going to continually be on my mouth. I will boast in the Lord. And you know that word boast is the idea of of brag about. And what David is saying is, I'm not bragging in myself. You can imagine how easy it would have been after David had had all of those victories and everybody singing songs about David, that David starts thinking he's something else. He becomes impressed. He's, he's reading his own press clippings at this point. And David's saying, I'm done with that. What in the world do I have to boast in? I'm the fool who thought the Philistines would help me. I don't have anything to boast in. From this point forward, all of my boasting belongs to God. But what stands out in these verses is, David's not content to praise God by himself. And so he immediately transitions into saying, 
magnify the Lord with me. Come, let us exalt His name together. So this, this psalm wasn't written to remain a solo. This, this song was written to call the people of God to join in. This is the way. Listen, this is the way real praise always works. Real praise is infectious. Real praise wants company. Listen, if, if your only desire to sing would... We, we will occasionally have people come into our church who will visit and they'll come and they'll give me a talk at some point afterwards about how they are solo singers and they like to sing solos and they're looking for a church where they can sing solos. And my view is people like that should almost never sing solos. The apex of our singing is not to sing alone. The apex of our singing is we sing together. We want company to join in on our songs. And that's what David is calling for. He says, let us magnify the Lord Together. Well, what does that mean, magnify the Lord? In school, you might remember, remember using a magnifying glass or a microscope. What do you use a microscope for? Well, microscopes take these little slides and they take these tiny little microbes and they blow them up so that they look huge. So is that what it means to magnify the Lord? Does that mean... We need to find all of these little attributes about God and let's blow them up so they look bigger than they are so that we'll have something to praise God for. Now, it's been wisely said that we don't, we don't magnify God like a microscope. We magnify God like a telescope. What do telescopes do? Well, when you go outside tonight and you look up at the sky, what do you see? You see these tiny little pinpricks of light. They, they look like nothing. They seem very distant. They seem very unimpressive. But you start looking at those pinpricks of light through a powerful telescope and what happens? All of a sudden, you start seeing them for what they really are. That prick of light is actually a, a star that's three times bigger than our sun. And that prick of light is a planet. That's Jupiter, that's 11 times bigger than the planet that we're standing on right now. And this telescope magnifies, meaning it pulls it close. It helps you see it for what it really is. That's what David is saying we do. We don't, we don't magnify the Lord by taking little things and blowing them up to make God seem better than He is. We magnify God through our praise by pulling God near. It's so easy in life, through our fallen eyes, God seems like this little prick of light, like He's distant, like He's small. But what we want to do in our praise is we pull God near. So we help each other see God for who He is. We help each other see the attributes of God for what they really are. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, David says. In verse 4 is where David starts giving his testimony. David says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me. And you can think of David saying, I sought the Lord, and he heard me. He heard me. Did you, did you hear when I'm writing this? He heard the guy who went to the Philistines for help. He heard the guy who told a whopper of a lie to the high priest at the tabernacle to get a sword. Me. God heard me. This is amazing to David. He heard me, and he delivered me. But this wasn't just something that God does for David. That's why he says in verse 5, they, he's looking at the multitude now, they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. The point David's making is 
Everyone who looks to the Lord is radiant. Now, what does it mean to look to the Lord? Looking to the Lord means trusting in the Lord. It would be like the coach going up to the star player before the game and going, hey, we're looking to you tonight. In other words, we're counting on you in this game. That's what David has in mind here. Those who look to the Lord, those who count on the Lord are radiant. That word radiant is used by Isaiah to describe a mom whose face lights up when she sees her kids who she thought were lost. So radiant is the idea of of lighting up with joy and lighting up with confidence. That's what David is describing. His point is that the countenance, listen, the countenance of God's people changes when they look to the Lord. So David has gone through this stretch where his eyes had been drawn to everything else. David's eyes have been focused on what's going on with Saul. His eyes have been focused on how much, uh, how big his needs are. David's eyes have been on everything else imaginable. But now David is saying, but when you look to the Lord, your face will be lifted. The countenance of God's people is filled with joy and confidence and peace and assurance when they lift their eyes to the Lord. And then look at verse 6. It's back to testimony. David says in verse 6, This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Notice what David emphasizes. David didn't cry out to the Lord as the anointed king. David didn't cry out to the Lord as the great general. David didn't cry out to the Lord as the fabulous soldier who everybody should be impressed with. David isn't bringing anything before the Lord that he feels like should have earned God hearing him. David comes to the Lord as this poor man. And David's convinced that what God did for him, he'll do for us. If, if, if that poor man could cry to the Lord, this poor man can cry to the Lord. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. This, this isn't just something God does for David. It's something God does for all those who fear him. That phrase, by the way, the angel of the Lord, is a phrase that's used around 50 times in the Old Testament. And it's a way of talking about God appearing to his people to help. It's the Old Testament's way of describing God's presence with his people. It's often looked at as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, a theophany where God appeared in some visible form, sometimes with the angelic army on behalf of his people to, to show his presence to his people. And the point is that God is present with his people. When his people's eyes are lifted to him and when his people's hearts fear him, he makes his camp with us. His presence is with us. He surrounds us in his protection. And then verses 8 through 10, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There's no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger. Lions, of course, were the most powerful predator in the world. And David is saying, even lions can't meet all their needs on their own. But those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. What does David mean when he says, taste and see? Taste and see means you need to experience this yourself. It would be like, we just came through Thanksgiving. 
So imagine going to your family's Thanksgiving meal and somebody came up to you and said, hey, have you tried grandma's new pecan pie recipe? It's the best I have ever tasted in my life. You got to try it. It's not enough for you to hear me describe it. You got to taste this yourself. That, that's the idea. When David says, taste and see, David is saying, you got to experience this yourself. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So how do we do that? How do we taste and see? Well, he explains it in the rest of the verses. He says in verse 8, blessed is the man who trusts in him. He says in verse 9, fear the Lord, you his saints. He says in verse 10, those who seek the Lord. The, the point is, we taste and see by trusting. We taste and see by seeking. We taste and see by fearing the Lord. So here's David's call to you this morning. Don't, don't be content to just hear stories about God's goodness. Taste it. Don't, don't be content to listen to other people's testimony about God's provision, how God met their need, how God helped them when they cried out in despair. Don't be content to hear the testimonies. Call out to Him yourself. So David is inviting you, he's inviting us to come in and personally experience the goodness of God. That's the hymn. And then he transitions, secondly, into the sermon. The second part, following Spurgeon's outline, is David's sermon. So, beginning with verse 11, this psalm starts turning toward instruction. Meaning, there are lessons David wants us to learn from his experience. And they are important lessons. Look at verse, starting verse 11. We'll read down through verse 14. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So David starts by calling us to gather around like a father would call his children and the first lesson David says we need to learn from his experience is we need to learn to fear the Lord. I mentioned a second ago, one, one of our greatest challenges in life is fear. And think of all the things that David had to fear during that situation. He had Saul to fear, he had suffering to fear, he had death to fear, he had need to fear, he had hunger to fear. So how do we deal with fear? Every person in this room has fears. You have anxieties that grip your heart. What's the way through fear? Well, David is saying, the only way past those fears is the fear of the Lord. The only way those lesser fears are driven out is by a greater fear. The only thing we're called to fear, the only one we're called to fear is God. What does it mean to fear God? It, well, it means we... We give God the place of highest supremacy. We see God as the greatest being. Uh, maybe to illustrate it, you know, several hundred years ago, most people were convinced that, that the earth was at the center of our solar system. Most people were convinced that the, the sun actually orbited around the earth, and they had that exactly backwards, didn't they? The sun doesn't orbit around the earth. The earth orbits around the sun. That's called the, the Copernican Revolution. It's when they realized the earth's not at the center, the sun is at the center. Well, you and I in our sin, our tendency is we come into life thinking we're at the center. 
We come into life thinking everything revolves around us. So the key to life is, the key to a happy life is you just got to be true to yourself and you just got to follow your heart and everything's about you and that's how you'll be happy. And we're even told God is mainly here for you. God is mainly here to keep you happy and God, God is mainly here to help you reach your potential and God is here for you. And spiritually speaking, the Copernican revolution happens when God saves you and you begin to see you're not at the center, God is. God doesn't exist for us, we exist for God. And as long as you go through life thinking everything is going to revolve around you, you've, you've condemned yourself to emptiness and failure. And David is saying, that's what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord means you come to realize God is the great gravitational center of everything. And so you set your life and everything in your life in orbit around God. That's the fear of the Lord. And that's what David is calling for here. In fact, don't miss what he says in verse 12. Because verse 12 is flowing out of verse 11 where he says, Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Now that's referring back up to what he just said in verse 11. So what David is saying is, if you desire to really live life, if you want to know good days on this earth, then the fear of the Lord is the only way there. Now I want to, I want to camp there just for a second. I want all of our, our younger folks to tune in. So all of our teenagers and college students and, and young singles, I want everybody to tune in to me for a minute. You know, one of the, one of the most uh, effective lies that Satan has been telling ever since the Garden of Eden is the lie that the only way to the good life is to get away from God. See, this is, this is what Satan convinced Adam and Eve of, right? God is saying, here's what I've called you to do. Um, obey this one commandment. And Satan comes on the scene going, no, God's trying to keep you from the good things. And if you follow God here, you're going to miss out on the good life. And you see this. You often see this impulse at some point that will rise up in the hearts of kids who were raised in the faith, where they begin thinking, this is keeping me from the good life. It's like worshiping God and obeying God. Those are the fences. And it's keeping me from really enjoying life. So I can't wait to get over those fences and to get away from God. And then life's going to be great. And what David is saying to you here, listen to me, is it's a lie. It is a lie. You were made by God. So you'll never find real life disconnected from God. All of those paths, this is Solomon's story in Ecclesiastes. Every single path you run down away from God, it might look differently initially. It leads you to the same location. It leads you to absolute emptiness. It might give temporary pleasure. It will leave you empty and broken in the end. And so David is saying the only way to a real, full, rich, meaningful, satisfying life is if you will walk in the fear of the Lord. So don't fall for the lie. He continues, verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. You see what David mentions? He mentions God's eyes, God's ears, God's face. And the picture he's given is it's as if God is, is stooped over paying attention to his people. His ear 
is open to their cry. It's like God is turning his ear to hear the cry of his people. It's like a mama. A mama can be in a room with a dozen people and noise beyond belief, and she hears her baby's cry. That's what David is saying is God, his ear is tuned to his people, and his eye is glued to his people. God never takes his eye. This is his eye of care, his fatherly eye, his eye of protection and discipline and love. He never takes his eye off of his children. I was thinking this week as I was reading this, the, the first time I remember letting our boys go into the grocery store by themselves. They were, they were very small and they had been pleading with me to let them go get the groceries. And so I remember going to the grocery store one night and Courtney was in the car with me and much to her chagrin, I agreed that I was going to let Wyatt and Ty go in. We had like two items we needed to get. They were, I probably shouldn't have done it. They were very small. But anyway, I handed them a $10 bill and sent them in to get like, you probably could get two things now with a $10 bill, but I sent them in to get a couple items with this $10 bill and they get out of the car and they're walking into the, the grocery store but as soon as they got to the door of the grocery store, I got out of the car too. And I followed them around the whole grocery store. They never knew I was there, but I was, I was peeking around every aisle and making sure they got the right thing and they didn't break out into a fight in the middle of aisle six and making sure they got the cashier paid and just making sure everything was okay, that they were safe, that they were protected. My eye was not going to be off of them. And that's what David is saying here is that God never takes his eye off of his children. God is not, Christian, listen to me, God is not a negligent father. He is attentive. He sees, he hears, he knows, he cares. And meanwhile, David says that God's face is set against so God's disposition toward his children is completely different from his disposition toward those who do not know him, who will not turn to him. Keep going, verse 17. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. And save such as have a contrite spirit. Now some of your translations will note that word contrite is really the, the word for crushed. David is saying God is near to the broken and he saves those who are crushed. And I, I want to emphasize just I want to emphasize just what good news that is. Because here's what I know in our church family. I know there were folks who came in this morning. And you manage to muster a nice smile to everyone that you've run into. But inside, you are absolutely crushed. 2023 has not been the year you were hoping for. You have lost loved ones. It has been filled with challenges. This is not where you thought you would be in your life right now. You're crushed. You're broken. Do you hear what good news that verse is. Do you, do you hear God saying to you through David, if you will look to him when you're broken, he'll hear you. If you'll cry out to him when you're crushed, he'll draw near and help you. This psalm is written for the brokenhearted. Got to keep going. Verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. 
Not one of them is broken. Notice he doesn't sugarcoat it in verse 19. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. That means, that means many in number and many in kind. There is no end to the wide variety of afflictions that we may face in this life. But David is saying, you won't face a one that is too big for God. And then verse 20 is written as the supreme illustration of that. You know, we find out from the New Testament authors, they viewed verse 20 as a prophecy about Jesus. It's quoted in John's gospel, in John, um, I think it's John chapter 19. And underlying this was the idea that, that God commanded that when a Passover lamb was altered, uh, offered, none of the bones of the Passover lamb could be broken. The bones had to be left intact. And the New Testament author saw this as being ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, that as he's being crucified as the supreme Passover lamb on the cross, even as they broke the legs of the other criminals hanging there with him, his bones were not broken. God guarded his bones, not just on the cross, but God guarded his bones in the tomb. God preserved his bones and brought him back to life. And the idea is if, if God is faithful in that affliction, there is no affliction that God's not enough for. If God is faithful for the affliction of death, what affliction could possibly be too big for God? In verses 21 and 22. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And verse, this last phrase is the best verse to me in the psalm. And none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. What David is doing here is he's saying, here's what the future holds for the wicked, and here's what the future holds for the righteous. The wicked will eventually be undone by their own evil. And David says, the wicked will be condemned. That's a heavy word. Condemned is a courtroom word. It means to be found guilty. Condemned means to be sentenced. Condemned means to be facing the due consequences, enduring judgment that's rightly owed. And I would add, condemnation, what David is saying here, condemnation, you understand, is what we all deserve, right? We all deserve the just consequences for our sin. It's not just, man, we can... We can look at some of these horribly evil people throughout history and we think, well, yeah, sure, Mao deserves condemnation and Hitler deserves condemnation. But the point of the Bible is, it's not just Hitler who de deserves to be condemned. It's Jared who deserves to be condemned. It's Jeffrey and it's Tony and it's, every, and it's uh, Walker and it's Danny and it's George. We all deserve to be condemned by God because of our sin. The just consequences should fall on all of us. That's why I pointed out that last verse is such good news where David says, none of those who trust in the Lord will be condemned. That, that is the gospel in the Old Testament. Through faith, we're not condemned. Now we know that gets spelled out in a little more detail in the New Testament. We know we're not condemned because ultimately Jesus would be condemned for us. We're not found guilty before God, not because God just decided to wave his hand and ignore it. We're not found guilty before God because Jesus took the guilty charge in our place. And Jesus went to the cross under the curse of our condemnation. 
So that now everyone who turns to him in faith, that the way uh, Charles Wesley wrote it in his hymn, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. That's the good news. Those who look to him, none of those who look to him will be condemned. So what do we say then? If, if we find ourselves in that group that because of faith are not condemned, if we find ourselves in that group of those who say, I was the fool and I cried out to the Lord and can you believe it? He heard me. If we're in that group, then, then what do we say? Well, we say what David says here. I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise will continually be on my lips. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Come and let us exalt his name together. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me, just, let me just plead with some of you. You've sat in church services over and over, and you've heard preachers, and you've heard Sunday school classes, and you've heard parents, and you've heard testimonies of people who talk about how good the Lord is and the freedom that God's given them from guilt. And you've heard it, and you've heard it, and you've heard it. You've never tasted it. And let me plead with you this morning. Taste and see. Look to the Lord yourself. Cry out to Him yourself. Believe in Him yourself. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. And we say, Amen. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. I'm going to give you a few minutes just to go to the Lord in your seat. And my charge to you would be a couple things. One, taste the Lord's goodness yourself. Call out to God. Maybe, maybe you have been very much like David was and you've been looking to a million other things and your life has been drowning in fear and David is saying, lift your eyes to God. Let, let your life orbit around His greatness. Let His praise continually be in your mouth. Thank God that we can cry out when we are broken and that we can cry out when we're crushed and He says He'll hear us. So cry out to him now in faith and know the goodness of the Lord. I'll give you a few minutes to pray in your seat and then I'll come close us.